Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me and here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, here we are, half uh, half remote, like co- half COVID remote, and more than half COVID remote, two-thirds COVID remote. And I'll tell you what I mean by that, in that um, Giannis and Brody Henderson are in um, our studio. How's it feel over there, guys? Back to you. It's great. Wish you were here. I <laughs> am on, maybe I'm on my third, I might be on my third or fourth quarantine i'm not totally sure yet i'm waiting on seth to get his latest result who like he already had covid now he's maybe got it again um all of his buddies got it so there's a good chance he does (laughs) yeah his theory seth feels like when he had it he didn't have it but now he has it but i got 20 bucks riding on the fact that he doesn't have it but like he already had it your betting history hasn't gone so well lately. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> I just won a thousand bucks on Pebble Mine, probably. I lost two hundred on the election, made a hundred on a different election related bet, and then picked up a the thousand. All right, I, you're ahead. I, it's pretty I, good. I need to forgive the thousand because it's with a family member, and that's that's the kind of money that like causes tensions. <laughs> so I'm gonna find a way to let her off. But uh, also joined by Clay Newcomb. Thanks, Clay. Re- yeah. Who's who's remote, not quarantined, but remote. 
and uh, Whit Fosberg from TRCP uh, from the very functional, the very functional city of Washington D.C., where no one does anything weird. Oh no, normal as can be. <laughs> like, what what's the general climate like in D.C.? Not not I don't mean like the weather, but is it, you know, is it just like business as usual, or, or people scratching their heads, or what? Yeah, it's more or less business as usual. I mean, we've gotten used to the unusual now. So, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going on and, you know, people are just sort of waiting for the latest maelstrom to pass. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Um, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about doings and DC doings in a minute. But Clay, uh, I'm surprised you don't know. Clay recently did for us a video, a wonderful video um, about how to make Christmas ornaments with squirrel tails. Yeah. I think I know where you're going with this. Well, first I'm going with the fact that you're a video making machine. Man, it was, uh, you know, I'm pretty crafty too. So kind of home crafty. <laughs> Clay made a video. Uh, you, you, I, it's out, right? Like I saw that. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh okay, yeah. It's right. on, it's on media, Instagram, media website, Facebook. It's out there, man. Yeah. It's like yeah. viral, man. Went viral. Yeah. Clay's, Clay's got virality, and by that I don't mean COVID. But um, I'm surprised you don't know about tail slitters and tail strippers. <laughs> I, I, I you, you, you will soon because I just bought you one of each. Man, but well, hey, you know what? So Steve texted me the other day, and I knew he was watching my video, and he said, "Do you not have a tail stripper?" And I almost texted you back that you were like one of the internet trolls. Like, you know no, how many I, people I, have I, asked I me that? I troll on text. I'm a text troll. <laughs> hey, you know what, man? I grew up using but green listen, sticks. Man. Yes. I mean, that's my tail strippers, green sticks. Two of them. Two green sticks, but with a squirrel tail, it was just easy enough to do it with hand, you know, by hand. Well, I got it. What I thought for sure you would say when I asked you if you had a tail slitter and a tail stripper, I thought you would say, I do, but I don't want to discourage people from doing this by making them think you needed fancy equipment. Mm. And listen, don't say that it was uh, that I'm that it's trolling. It's a text. Trolling is when you do it in a public format as a way to like put people in their place. Gotcha. I, d- I sent you gotcha. a private text. Okay. To put you in your place. To- no. <laughs> and then, and then turned around and ordered one for you as a gift. That's, that's pretty high level, high level, uh, thoughtful. He's saving you from future trolling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, a, it was what you thought, the foresight that you thought that I had to like make this do it yourself video, it would have been cool if I would have thought that, but I didn't think that I just didn't have, I just didn't have the gear. And yeah. I, I Can think you guys explain the whole point of, uh, yeah. Okay. To understand a tail stripper, take your middle finger and index finger and put them together. Okay. Like you're making the peace sign, but then sandwich your fingers together. Now imagine that right at your middle knuckle, you were to drill a hole right where your fingers touch. 
and then you were to take your fingers and clamp them around the tailbone so that that little hole you drilled was accommodating the tailbone. Then you grab that device and pull, and it strips the bone right out of the tail. The tail slitting guide is like a long sliver of metal with a, gr- with a groove in it, and you insert that into the tail, fox, coon, squirrel, whatever, and then just run your knife down that groove, and it slits the tail open so you can dry it out. Without I, having a bony spine inside. I didn't know the tail slitter existed. I, I did know about the tail strippers, but the tail slitter, that is totally new to me. Yeah, I ordered you one, aluminum. All right. Uh, quick note on that. Yanni, you'll like this. Um, Seth and I were, uh, before he got uh, got to thinking he had COVID all over again, um, we were squirrel hunting, and we've been we've embarked on a project that you'll probably want to get involved in where we, we had some fox squirrels the size of house cats. And, we're, and you guys got a blackface fox squirrel, which is way cool. No. That was a gray. That was a gray. That's a black that face black gray. One? Even though it's huge, I'm sure it's, it's a black huge. face gray. I mean, it was equal to those fox squirrels. I think it's a black face gray. Either way, me, Seth, Matt, we're getting, um, and we started our collection. We're all getting a complete set of tanned squirrel hides. Eastern gray, black face gray. Fox, and then I'm going to go on and on and on until I have the full. So we're going to start fleshing and stretching those, and we're each going to have a collection. I just got a couple of Montana fox squirrels last week. I saw that. Uh, one other. What's thing your we, plan for displaying those, Steve? Hang them on a string. Like just let them drape, or are you yeah. going to like put them on a wall? No, yeah, I'll let, them, let, I'll them, let them hang on a wall. I look, I look classy. No, I look great. Um, one other quick thing we did, Clay, that I thought you might find interesting. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving, we made a bunch of raccoon barbecue sandwiches. Mm. Very How good. How was it? Mm. I put my oven on 400 and browned all the legs and whatnot and the back pieces in my oven for a long time. Then I pressure cooked them for 20 minutes. Then we picked it, put barbecue sauce in it, got coleslaw, pickles, and brioche buns. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, where'd Every, you get the coon? Uh, my brother's buddy had him. So he brought it all over. While we're on cooking, can I uh, share a little something I learned? I think you guys would all like to hear about because you can go home and try it if you don't haven't tried it yet. Yeah, please. And for the for the life of me, I cannot remember. I've texted three separate people saying, Hey, were you the one that told me that uh, your family and your wife really like smash burgers? Like uh, venison burgers done smash burger style. I don't and know what that like, is. Nope, I, I don't, don't know, know what, what you're is. talking about. <laughs> so it obviously wasn't you either. Very simple. All you do is you just get a, uh, instead of making patties, you make balls, just venison balls, season them if you want or whatever. I did just plain, you know, with whatever my 10% fat in there. Like a big ass Eat, meatball. Big ass meat. Well, yeah, but not. Not like it's probably just a little bit bigger than a golf ball, not quite the size of a, um, you know, tennis ball. N- okay. Not the same amount of meat that you would use for a regular quarter pound patty that you like, like you normally cook your burgers at home, right? And Hold on a minute, man. T- if you're saying there's a big difference between a golf ball and a tennis ball, 
Yeah, I said somewhere in between. Okay. I can't think of a ball that lands right in between those two. Freaking racquetball. Hand, handball, racquetball. Yeah, racquetball. there you go. Maybe that would work. Okay, so I make a piece of meat like a racquetball. Super hot skillet or flat top grill. Okay, it's got to be flat. No, can't can't be a grill. Get it smoking hot. You put, I was doing three at a time. You put those balls and spread them out evenly onto that skillet. You know, I had, I must've been just like a 10 inch skillet, I guess, that I have at home that I was using. And then at first I started with a slotted spatula, but I realized I wasn't going to be able to move fast enough. So I had another uh, skillet where I could just put it on top of these balls and just squish them until, until they were, you know, figuratively paper thin. Hot squish balls. You're looking for, yeah, paper thin patties. And so you literally squish them down. They cook like that for less than a minute. You flip them, throw some salt on there, put a piece of cheese on there, let them cook for another 30 seconds and they're done, which is another cool thing about them is they cook super, super fast. Um, You kind of get like weird edges and you get a little bit more just uh, browned kind of bits and pieces on your burger than you would, I think, doing the normal patty. Um, so it gives you a little more, more caramelization in in the mouth, a little bit more crispy edges. But uh, yeah, the kids each just had one, and uh, I did uh, a triple on mine and uh, had cheese in between each layer of meat and uh, much, much different eating experience than your standard make patty and throw it on your grill cheeseburger well how does the, rec- how does the burger know how does the burger know that it was squished on the grill as opposed to on a cutting board or on a plate i think I it's an issue I, of I, didn't, I didn't try it to do it ahead of time so maybe you could do it ahead of time and just put them skinny like but you're working with something hopefully that's going to be so thin that i imagine that it'd be fragile if you try oh, to make them that thin ahead of time that makes sense yeah, yeah, you wouldn't be able yeah. to move it around. And the internet's full of, if you just type in Smashburger recipe, there's, there's you know, tons of recipes out there to read. I think that's the way a lot of these uh, burger franchise restaurants do it, like the cool ones, like uh, In-N-Out Burger, I think, does that. And some of these And the one called too. Smashburger. I'm not familiar with that one. Hmm. Yeah. You guys know how we were talking recently about those those crazy footprints that came out of New Mexico where it was the... An individual walked along a path and then walked back along that same path some thousands of years ago. And in the time between when he or she passed through the second time, a mammoth and a giant ground sloth had crossed her trail in White Sands National Park or National Monument, whatever the hell it is. A guy from Australia wrote in about these crazy fossilized footprints from Australia. It was from these hunters of about 20,000 years ago. And there's like a few sets of hunters and a family. There's a kid that kind of wanders off and comes back into the group. But there's also the footprints of a one-legged person. They mm-hmm. don't see where the individual was using a walking stick. Like it either wasn't. Um, it either wasn't captured in the, 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 like fossilized prints, but it seems as though this person with one leg was able to like cruise along hopping on one leg. Wow. Mm. 
We also recently reported on this big flock shooting, this big elk hunting flock shooting occurrence in Montana. So there's this, there's a ranch and the ranch is enrolled in a, in something called a block management area. And the way block management areas work is you take revenue from non-resident hunting licenses and use it to fund this program where ranchers and landowners, farmers get paid to allow, get paid a very modest fee. No one gets rich off this stuff. They get paid a modest fee. I think the cap is 15,000 a year. Yeah. It's like, they're basically doing a favor to hunters. They're like, it's a gesture. It is a, it is a gesture to the public. And part of the annoyance, this is one way you could think about it. Part of the annoyance of this is offset with a small amount of money. It's not life-changing money to enroll in block management. Um, but it's a block management place. And on opening day of general firearm season, a bunch of guys get on to a herd of elk and start flock shooting. I think they kill like 50 of these elk. Citations were written. Um, I'm not sure what the citations are for, but on there we mused about what does the landowner think about all this? Well, a guide that, that, that does some work for this landowner, not on this place, but he guides a different property, wrote in and said he watched this spectacle from seven miles away. It was too far to see any individual elk fall, but he said it sounded like the beaches of Normandy. When these guys surrounded this herd of elk. And he said, if you're asking what the landowner thought of the whole thing, the landowner is, quote, not happy with this event. And he is considering dropping out of the block management program, which is a real disappointment. Uh, another thing I read about recently, uh, a hunter in Minnesota just fatally shot. I mean, this happens every year. Fatally shot another hunter. Mistook him for a deer. Apparently, the guy that got shot uh, wasn't wearing his hunter's orange. This is up by Bemidji. Apparently, the guy that got shot wasn't wearing any hunter's orange. But, you know, and you might look at that and be like, oh, that's the problem. But I mean, when someone, when you hear of someone mistaking someone for a deer, it's kind of like, not only did you think you were looking at a deer, you thought you were aiming at its rib cage. It's just so hard to understand why this has to be a story that you read every year, multiple times. Like are, are 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 people so greedy and lusty that that they want a deer that bad? Yes. Yeah. Firing at movement, like mistaking. I don't buy the mistaking it for a deer. They're just seeing movement. It's got to be. You know, I've been I've been surprised at um, sometimes people. I mean, as a growing up a bow hunter. Like we were taught not to shoot at walking deer. We were taught to really calculate the shot. I mean, you had to, to be a successful bow hunter and then transitioning later in life to rifle hunting and different things, especially in the big woods when deer are moving through big woods. I'm surprised at the shots that I see 
and hear about people taking, which they've almost got to be just, you know, like shooting at something that's moving. And I'm not saying they're not identifying what they're seeing as a deer, but as far as like, are they aiming at the rib cage? I, I don't know how they could be. You know, a, a, a much more common hunting injury, I think it's the most common hunting injury from firearms is when someone's swinging on a bird with a shotgun. And you know you're shooting at a bird, but what you don't see in the foreground or in the distance is your hunting partner or another individual. And when I hear those stories, I'm often like, man, like I could, I hesitate to say this. You're like, I can just picture how that happens. Like I could picture how it happens, but something like this, I just can't. It's upsetting because it's so, it's so preventable. And so much more dangerous than, you know, like what happened to Dick Cheney years ago. Um, kind of interesting story to come out of Wisconsin. There's like a article that comes out about a local priest who's suffering hunter harassment. So this, he's called, he's a Norbertine priest, which I don't know what the hell that means. He's forced to file a police report because he keeps getting continued public harassment for bow hunting on the St. Norbert Abbey grounds in De Pere. So this dude joins this like order in 2013 and he lives on a 160 acre Abbey property. So like where he's sort of stationed is a hundred. Do they use that term? I don't think priests use that term, but he's stationed in this place, 160 acres. And he realizes that there are a lot of deer there. So he starts investigating and checks into his uh, city ordinances and regulations and checks with the DNR, uh, checks village stuff. Everybody says there's no reason you cannot be bow hunting on Abbey grounds. So he starts a bow hunt and he quickly, (laughs) this dude gets... He stacks up four deer, but people in the town are so pissed. He had to go and, uh, you know, pursue his hunter harassment law protections to keep hunting on his Abbey. I was really going down there and doing communion and whatnot and hanging out with the guy just to get his <laughs> Well, back. I can see there's a lot of listeners whose wheels are turning right now thinking about ways <laughs> they can get into some good hunting properties. You know, oh, yeah. You I'm just going to become into, a priest. Yeah, that's, that's a line of work I'm going to start pursuing, man. Um, Brody, talk about this uh, Talk about this dude that got in trouble for uh, this dude that got in trouble for setting a, a mountain bike trap. Oh, yeah. This happened in Montana. Um, he's in big trouble. Yeah, like um, like like there's no way he's going to be in that much trouble. I don't know, man. Dude. Okay. Tell everybody about it, but I bet you he'll wind up getting like a nothing. A slap on the, a slap on the wrist. I I don't know. We'll see. Um, certainly could have hurt some people. Uh, this guy is not a fan of mountain bikers, (laughs) which, you know, uh, which you know what? I, I, I can understand, like, he, I got to tell the story first. Okay. He he put a board that he had hammered maybe a, a dozen nails through, uh, quite a few nails, 
to lay across a trail so that when mountain bikers ran over that board, they'd pop their tires. This was in an area where mountain biking is completely legal. I, I'm not even sure how they tracked the guy down and, and confirmed that, that it was him, but he confessed to it. Well, a dude, he a was, dude out walking his kids stepped on the board. Right, but I'm saying how did they get from point A to point B? Oh, like, like how did they ever figure out who the hell was doing it? Who it was. But he once they, they caught up to him, he, he confessed to it, said he wasn't trying to hurt anyone. He just didn't like all those mountain bikers out there. When I was reading about one of the things that struck me was one of the investigators winds up interviewing a guy who had allowed this individual access to the national forest through his private property. And when the investigator prevent, presents this guy with a board with all the nails through it, he tells the investigator, yes, I saw the suspect with such a board. Gotcha. Who laid out for me his plan to use it to, to reduce mountain bike traffic. They, they describe this guy as a witness, but how is he not sort of complicit? Right. Like if I, he he could have at least said that's not not a good idea, right? Yeah, like if I went to your house, Brody, and I'm like, "See this machete? I'm going to take this machete and I'm going to go over and hit Clay on the head with it." Right? And then I do that, and then later you're like, "You know, he did have a machete." And he told me he was going to hit Clay on the head with it. Like, is that is that being a witness or is that being like something different? Blurs the That's line. That's an accomplice, I'd say. Yeah. The reason the reason I hesitated earlier is because there's a spot that I hunt back in Colorado where, um, you know, I've seen some illegal mountain bike use, some illegal motorcycle use, and, uh, you know, it bugs me. But that's, you know, in a spot they're not supposed to be. So do you normally just, like, string piano wire across <laughs> those trails? No. No. But... um. I'm not going to lie if I hadn't said I, I, I fantasized about the, the idea of doing the same exact thing this guy did. But, of course, I never followed through with it because you can hurt someone, you know. You can, but I'll tell you, on those uh, trails, illegal trails like that, because I know, I mean, we might be talking about the same spot. But uh, I would sort of advertently maybe kick a big rock onto that trail <laughs> or like roll a log onto that trail. I mean, no one's supposed to be mountain biking it. So, like you know, they come across a log, they should be prepared for that. Right. I got, I got a cousin. He caught a 30, I remember he caught a 63 pound beaver one time, but this same cousin, he tells me this, told me this, this is a long time ago. According to this cousin of mine, he one time was in an emergency room, like where the, um, ambulances pull up and you got like the sliding doors. I don't know what the hell he's doing there, but he was there. He says that out of this ambulance comes a gurney and on the gurney is a headless corpse under its arm is a helmet with the head still in it. This struck his curiosity. And he says that what happened was a guy was so pissed about snow machiners snowmobilers that he did like Yanni said and strung a wire. I don't know if that's true or not. We still, we floated, we used to float Mm -hmm. a river where the landowner, one of the landowners, you had to float through his property. He strung some wires, keep kayakers and rafters from rolling through. So we just carried wire cutters with us. (sighs) 
okay, Clay, tell us about the um tell us about what's going on with this Washington bear hunting deal now. Yeah. So there's uh I talked to a lady today that's with the Inland Northwest Wildlife Council named Marie Newmiller, really nice lady. And she talked about how she was at a a spring, the commission meeting, and because the spring seasons were the first seasons of 2021 that they came up and were talked about. And basically, she was the only hunter there that gave any positive input about the spring seasons in Washington. And she said that there were basically there was a room full of people that were upset about the, that had negative things to say about a spring season. They had all these different reasons, but there was a couple of interesting things that she spoke about. So this was a zoom meeting and she said that uh, there's a lot of out of state special interest groups that are influencing wildlife law in the state of Washington and in other places, which was kind of a new a new idea that is kind of an influence of COVID because there's a mountain lion group in California, an anti-predator hunting group in California that was present in this meeting. Um, there, I made a list here of five takeaways from what she said, Steve, but uh, basically COVID-19 and these, some of these Zoom meetings are given access to to these groups to regulation meetings from afar that they never had. The second thing that, she that said would that never, that would never have showed up. That wouldn't have been likely to right. show up for local meeting. That's right. They would have never showed up. Huh. Second of all is that in the state of Washington, and I would assume this is the same in other States, they, they, any email that comes into the commission is presented and somehow acknowledged by the commission. And so these anti-hunting groups are pretty well well put together, and they're sending these form emails. So basically, one of the people got up and said, hey, we had 540 emails come in against the spring hunt. And it was a form email chain sent out by one of these anti-hunting groups. But you know what that does inside of a crowd when you begin to hear something negative? It's, it like empowered some of the people that were actually in the Zoom meeting to begin to speak out against it and um basically she was like where are the hunters at where where are the where's the voice of the hunters oh um, they're out hunting yeah and it, it, her her point to me was that the commissions hear the squeaky wheel but not the positive stories of hunters and hunting and uh you know we've we have i, I think the solution to the problem and and there's nothing specific that's happening in Washington like there's not a regulation that's being proposed that takes away their spring hunt but it just came up and she sent an email to meat eater and uh basically as hunters we need to build a culture that's more proactive talking with our game commissions talking about the positive things that that we see inside of our hunting seasons because there's definitely squeaky squeaky wheels um you know the there's a the cultural shifts that we're experiencing today inside of a, a, a era of technology basically rapid culture shifts 
can have significant consequences in hunting regulations and are moving much faster than they have in past decades because of technology. If yeah, I could say it that yeah. way. Like, so like, you know, this idea of some murmur about a spring bear hunt not being a good thing, like maybe in past times that would have taken 25 years to infiltrate a deep part of the culture to change regulation. Well, anymore, it's, that is moving much faster. And so, you know, I just think we just have to be more proactive with the tech communication game as hunters and, and, and speak up for stuff. But this points to a thing that I argue about frequently with my very dear friend, Carl Malcolm and Carl's of the opinion that, you know, um, we need more voices, right? More voices in the room, more seats at the table. And that game management in this country has so long been uh, so heavily influenced by hunters and anglers. And he's points to the fact that we need to be realistic about the fact that more people have input and that we're not always going to enjoy having oversized input on like game commission rules and things. Uh, I don't know if he's being pragmatic or if he's being hopeful when he talks about the fact that more people are going to be coming into the conversation, but I don't necessarily look at that as an entirely good thing. Um, and as we deal with like management and funding structures where right now fishing game agencies are funded largely by hunters and anglers and shooters, meaning people that buy hunting and fishing licenses and all kinds of other things that are have excise taxes on them for that purpose, like marine gas and sporting goods and all kinds of things. Um, funding from that and funding from like funding from buying licenses and buying sporting goods right so the 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 users are paying as we look at these other funding structures and we talk about you know having a backpack tax or a trail tax or some way for other outdoor users to kick in money then when they kick in money they're going to probably want to have their opinions be heard and i don't think their opinions are always going to go along with ours yeah, but the trick to you can do that is just target those dollars to what they're used for. So if there's an excise tax on mountain bikes that's for fixing up mountain bike trails someplace, that's great. You know, yeah. that shouldn't be something that the hunter's dollar should be paying for, which has been you know partly done in the past. You just segregate the accounts. You know, in terms of fish and wildlife management, hunters ought to have a larger say. Well, you know, I think it goes back to and you guys help me understand this better. Even it goes back to how these state game agencies are run. Like her, one of the things we talked about today, she told me that 4% of people in Washington state are hunters. So they're starting out as a minority. So the, the, the anti-hunting argument is that, hey, most of the people in this state aren't for this, Sp specifically talking about the spring bear hunt. So this is a democratic society. So why don't we stop? the spring bear hunt and the game agency in Washington came back with a great response as I understood it, which was we don't manage our game based upon democratic feel. I mean, and I know here in Arkansas, our commission is totally run by these commissioners. I mean, it's, it's not a referendum state, meaning you can't just get a bunch of people together, 
sign a petition to get something made into law. Um, so that brings up the question. I mean, is are our game management practices up for the democratic process? Yeah, but I mean, like so much stuff in society is not, or so much stuff. I mean, we have a representative democracy, right? Like you have an opportunity now and then for your congressman, it's every two years, your senator is every six years, your president's every four years, whatever. You have an opportunity now and then to weigh in on generally how things are going. But when people point out like it's a democratic society, it's like, okay, if we're going to go invade Iraq, right? Do we then have a quick vote to see if we're going to do it or not? If we're going to have a new tax bill, do we have a quick vote to see if we're going to do it or not? Or like, we're going to lower um, the maximum fine for marijuana possession. Do we put that? To, of course not. Like, we like get people to do things for us. And we don't subject everything to a temperature check, a public temperature check every time we turn around. Um, and, and so when people like, That's a good po- point. when people point out that argument, I'm like, yeah, I see what you're saying, but we don't do anything like that. Yeah. One of the things we're going to talk to, one of the things I want to talk to Witt about is, uh, Witt, are, do you have opinions about what happened with Colorado? Uh, the, the, um, where in this case, where we did go to a public opinion and have like a public opinion, a poll on a, a path toward a wolf. Yeah, no, I don't, you know, listen, I think that, you know, the worst thing you can do is to sort of have, you know, wildlife management by ballot box. I mean, this is professionals ought to be dealing with this stuff. And you know, that's why you have professionally run, you know, game fishing game agencies. And uh, no, I think if we've failed, if we go to this, you know, model of, you know, trying to get the citizens to weigh in on you know, issues like that. Colorado has a history of that too. Yeah. That involves the spring bear hunt, you know, and I think in the mid nineties, the spring bear hunt in Colorado was outlawed by ballot box initiative. Right. And you could even argue that, you know, Congress is not the right place to be dealing with things like, you know, wolf delisting, which we ended up having to do around, you know, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, certainly because, you know, the courts kept blocking it, even though biologically it was justified to delist wolves. So Congress had to weigh in and you know deal with it there. But again, that's not the best place either. Are you guys familiar with the predator hunting conspiracy theory that the anti-hunting community wants to shut down predator hunting so that predators would overtake the landscape and take down ungulate numbers to such a level that hunting would no longer be necessary? Because have you heard that? Yeah, no, I hear that. Do you know the, do you, there's one we like to talk about a lot, which is even more insidious. It was that, uh, the Clintons. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. They liked wolf. They wanted wolves to come. They wanted wolves reintroduction because the wolves would kill all the game. No one would hunt anymore. And if they couldn't hunt, they wouldn't have any reason to buy a gun. And that's how you disarm America. It's a mm. long, it's a long play. So I feel I, like, this, <laughs> this is, I, 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 like, I don't know that that, I know that theory. And there's a guy, there's a guy that's a very big proponent of, uh, he's right here in our town. He's done a lot around wolf reintroductions and he gives a lot of talks about uh, wolf reintroductions, really likes him a lot. And he's very antagonistic toward hunters and i've mentioned this a couple times where he referred to hunters as the recreational big game killing industry 
uh, and, and views them as being like an adversary for it. But I don't think that he views wolf reintroduction as a way to stick it to hunters. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like he views that we have an obligation to like restore in a completely intact ecosystem. Be my guess. Maybe at night he's like, you know, like this insidious plot. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I could not if, like. If anybody could put it together, it'd be the Clintons, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. This... Hey, did you know my dad went to high school with Bill Clinton? Oh, because you're from Arkansas. Yeah, man. Did they party a lot? No, he was a few years older than my dad. But I, well, I'm sure Clinton did. Yeah, I just didn't know if your old but man partied with him. Not, not Gary Newcomb. No, sir. So your your old man can't put <laughs> your Gary Newcomb can't put to rest this inhale or not inhale thing. Well, <laughs> I, he probably could, but not because he was there. Got it. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So... On hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.com health slash meat eater but you got to use the promo code meat eater that's promo code meat eater okay at twc.health slash meat eater o'reilly auto parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road o'reilly auto parts offer friendly helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs if you're confused about what part you need like what wipers are going to be the best what replacement headlights are going to be the best go into o'reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do? For your family this spring, you can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. 
Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's policygenius.com. We're a little bit early. No, we're not too terribly early. Every year, most every year, for the last few years, we've done with WIT from Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, where, full disclosure, I am a proud board member. Uh, WIT Fosberg comes in and does a recap. So the year's not quite done, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's winding down. We're, we're getting there. It's winding down. Last year when we did this, you had uh, you had about 2019 a general thumbs up. We went through the details, but you had a thumbs up from conservation perspective. Where where does the thumb sit now? I'd say it's uh, middle of the road, you know, kind of sideways right now. There were some huge accomplishments in 2020. Uh, there have also been some real disappointments. Really? Uh, so, yeah. So I think it's, you know, a mixed bag as it usually is. So listen, you know, I think that overall, I think we're happy with where we you know got this year. We had some challenging circumstances. But once again, in, at least in Congress, conservation proved one of those things that you could actually get done in a very hyper-partisan year. You know, presidential election, you know, hot congressional elections, everything else. That's one of the, you talking about that and explaining how that happens, that conservation is a thing that, can move forward when, when nothing else can move forward. I was kind of, uh, thinking about that a little bit recently and looking at, um, that we'd have, uh, you know, Republican led Senate, a Democrat, in the white house, they're not going to get anything done. Maybe they'll decide to focus on some, some conservation work to get those easy wins that you were talking about that they often get thirsty for. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they have to, everyone has to show they can legislate and get stuff done. And if you look back at this year, I mean, things like the Great American Outdoors Act, which was you know permanent and full funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It was a $10 billion almost you know, trust fund to deal with maintenance backlog on public lands. That came together because, you know, a lot of different interests, you know, thought it was a good idea at the time. Some of those were conservationists interests, some were political. There was an idea that, you know, they wanted to help, you know, Cory Gardner in Colorado and Steve Daines, you know, re-election efforts. So, you know, Trump proposed doing this. Uh, this is something the Democrats have been pushing for years, and they weren't dumb enough to say, oh, because you're proposing it, I'm going to vote against it. It's like, hell yeah, bring it on. And so that allowed us to get it done. Can you can you explain why, like, the L- talk people through the LWCF. Sure. And why we had to have a new thing called the Great American Outdoors Act to sort of like provide backing for a thing we already had, which is the LWCF. Like, why does it require a new? It, it wasn't. It's just basically, you know, Congress passes things in bulk these days. It doesn't do individual bills very often. So 
you know, the Great American Outdoors Act had two independent bills underneath it. One was the Land and Water Conservation Fund. The other was the maintenance backlog. Uh, just a little background on Land and Water Conservation Fund. It was created in 1965 by Congress when they opened up the Outer Continental Shelf to oil and gas development. And the idea was that oil and gas industry pay into a fund uh, to do you know, natural resource conservation in perpetuity, $900 million a year. The problem was that in the 55 years that it's been around, only once did Congress actually fully fund it. So, you know, 2019 in a big omnibus bill that we passed, uh, we permanently reauthorized this. So you don't have to go back to Congress every year, every five years to get it reauthorized. In the Great American Outdoors Act, we took that funding and moved it off budget because what had Congress been doing is it saw this juicy pot of funding sitting out there that had not been protected in 1965 from being raided. So Congress raided it for all sorts of purposes unrelated to conservation. What were they raiding it for? Deficit reduction, schools, you know, who knows? I mean, it just, it was used for other purposes. So, you know, so the, and, they, and still, average, they still collected the money from the oil yes, companies. Oil and gas industry paid into it every year, $900 million. And in their mind, they're paying into it because of this thing, this fund. Sure. But then the money goes and sits in another pile and someone grabs the money off that pile. Oh yeah. No. So Congress looks at it and says, well, we could give it the $900 million we're supposed to. Or we could give it half of that and use the other half for these pet projects we might have. So finally, what we've been trying to do is get that off budget. So it automatically goes out. You know, things like Pittman-Robertson, Dingle-Johnson, you know, those funds Congress is not allowed to tamper with, the sportsman's excise taxes. Those go to the federal government and then go back out to the states. This would be similar in that the $900 million in full gets for, goes to projects like it was intended. Land acquisition, permanent easements, city parks, trails, you know, those types of activities. You know so that I, was a huge win. You know what I think people might be interested in about when we're talking about money going into piles and someone robbing that money is, uh, you know, when you buy, like earlier, I meant we talked about this. When you buy your fishing license, okay, the money from your fishing license goes to support your state game agency, which does everything from like regulation, you know, enforcement of hunting and fishing laws, disease research, access enhancement, uh, boat launches, like on down the line, it goes to all this stuff. If a state states are blocked, wait, you can tell me if this is universal or not. States are blocked from raiding that money because if they raid that money and don't put it for what it's supposed to go to, they're not eligible for the federal funds that come correct. from the excise taxes, correct? Yep. So you get, like, right. you get like slapped on the hand um, if you try to steal the hunting and fishing money. Correct. And now and that... It was, it was genius when they set that up. Because people would have taken that money. Oh, sure. And so now, you know, you have... A, if Congress can't rate it and the states can't rate it. You know, the matching funds the states use, basically, which is their state license fees. So no, it's a it's a perfect situation. It's worked, and that's why it's funded conservation for you know, since the 1930s. Is there like when all this LWCF money comes in? Mm -hmm. um, who who is the who is the who's the collection of people that decides where it goes? So half of it goes basically half of it goes back out to the states, and the states can use it for anything from. You know, real conservation, migration corridors, that type of activity, or they can use it for a city, you know, baseball diamond, basketball courts, you know, urban recreation. 
they have flexibility in how that gets used. The other half is basically goes to the agencies, uh, Department of the Interior, Department of Agriculture, that then goes out for very specific projects. And what we're trying to do is, you know, make sure that they really think about projects a little bit differently than they have in the past. LWCF has been used to fund like the big Plum Creek acquisitions on the Blackfoot and, you know, things like that, which are multi-million dollar, really complex deals. But it could also be used for things like, you know, funding, you know, buy one section someplace in Montana to open up a landlocked parcel. You know, as you guys know, we've been working with Onyx on those reports on landlocked. And you got 16 and a half million acres around the country that are owned by the public, but the public can't access. So, you know, start thinking about it a little bit differently because 3% of the 900 million, $27 million annually is earmarked for access projects. So start thinking about that little section or half section someplace that opens up a whole bunch of different land. And the Onyx project you know, really helps identify where those areas are. Yeah, because that's, like that's like a force multiplier on your money. When, exactly. when you buy like a small chunk and open up a huge chunk. Yeah. And you mentioned even like, you know, the, you know, block management in Montana, you know, buy a section that opens up more block management potentially Yeah, you know, or target some of the block management, which is also funded by the farm bill, you know, to, you know, again, access that national forest behind you. Whit, you said that some of this money could be used and it surprised me when you said like, urban projects like baseball diamonds and such. I knew that a lot, some of that money I had seen wording inside of that, where it said it could go for rifle ranges and firearms related stuff. I mean, how, how can, how are we not, how are we guarding against like all of that money going to baseball diamonds? Well, I mean, first of all, you're, you're, it's largely a state decision where they want to spend it. So engage in the process, you know, work with your, you know, game and fish agency you know, or your rec- outdoor parks or agency, whatever's in the state, and help influence that decision. The idea was that it makes sense to send some of this money local and let the locals decide how they want to spend it. And we want to make sure that they can think about, you know, you know that different ideas like migration, you know, corridors. You see a lot of the states in the West are now developing formal migration policies to try to identify and protect big game migration corridors. Use some of the stateside money to help, you know, further that cause, as well as doing things like baseball diamonds or if you do a shooting range or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, well, let's go on to, you, you got Pebble hey, I got, a, oh, I got a oh, quick follow-up if, if it's yeah, all right. Wh- that's I want to know, uh, thanks, Steve, I appreciate it. Um, when, when you're like, what does it look like if you can give me like an abbreviated version of when like you're in there, in the trenches, in D.C., trying to help push something like the Great American Outdoors Act through, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? And then two, like, did you, are there allies that like right alongside TRCP that are maybe not in our, you know, the hunting and fishing bubble that are also in there and, yeah, and helping push it's it through? Yeah, a great question. I'll answer the second part first. So yeah, okay. we had great allies in the outdoor recreation community, in the historic preservation community, you know, big, you know, there were literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different groups that were engaged in this. We were all fighting side by side for it. In terms of what it looks like in the trenches, I mean, what we do is really two things. One, we provide good information. You know, we let a member of Congress know, here are the projects that have benefited hunters and anglers in your state through LWCF. Here are the other types of projects that are sitting out there that could get funded if we had full funding. And then what we also do is apply some pressure. And, you know, 
honestly, they don't want to see me walking in the door. They want to hear from their local rod and gun club in the state, you know, the local chapter of Pheasants Forever or Turkey Federation engage. I mean, local voices matter a lot more than, you know, guys like me that live in here in D.C. and they're paid to do this stuff. So what we try to do is, you know, that's why we have guys in you know, a lot of the Western states around the country you know, as organizers mobilizing local businesses, local citizens, local rod and gun clubs to engage on these issues to make their voices heard. So it's one part good information, another part, you know, just, uh, you know, shoe leather and getting the people out there that can help influence this. Thank you. Uh, you put down pebble mine in the wind category. And, and, and I recognize that and to bring people that have been following this show, um, we had a big pebble episode recently. I shouldn't say recently, but I guess this fall we had a big pebble mine episode and it was funny because while we were recording that we had a gentleman on Tim Bristol, um, who just coincidentally, his last name is Bristol and pebble mine is, you know, in the headwaters of Bristol Bay. And he came on and sort of laid out the whole history of where this idea came from, why it's a bad idea, why it won't go away. And, and literally while we were speaking with him, he was very eager to get home after the interview. While we were speaking with him, a story was breaking about some, some activists who had masqueraded as foreign investors in Pebble Mine. And the CEO of Pebble Mine, what, what was his name, Whit? Tom Collier. Tom Collier. These people masquerade as investors. And they do an, a call with Tom Collier from Pebble Mine. And Tom Collier um, really opens up to them in a way that wound up being deeply humiliating to him, where he contradicted a lot of Pebble Mine's own messaging. Um, they had all along in the permitting process been looking for, you know, a, I don't know, like a, a 10 or 20 year roadmap. He shares with these, these supposed investors that this is like a 120 year play that uh he's got plans where the state is going to pay for a lot more things than the state had any intention of paying paying for and then he really like drives a nail in his own coffin by speaking rather disparagingly of a, a number of politicians that he needs to have a lot of cooperation with to the point where uh, some politicians who haven't been entirely supportive or t entirely dismissive, but have wanted the process to run. And they've been pretty careful to say that, like, this is a process we're going to allow to play out and they don't want to weigh in too heavily. But anyways, he goes and shares that basically these people are in his back pocket. And when the rubber meets the road, they'll do what he says. And there's nothing that's going to be quicker at getting those politicians to not do what you say than to say that. Oh yeah. No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I mean, that was, uh, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, the interview, the tapes, you know, had that big, uh, you know, bearing on the Corps' final decision to deny the permit for the mine, but it sure as hell helped persuade Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan to come out very vocally against that mine. Oh, just because it was you know, so insulting to them. And, uh, you know, it was, and we've been trying to get them both to come out hard against the mine and, Again, like you say, they've just sort of taken a very neutral stance of let's wait and see, let's see what they say. 
not wanting to you know tick anybody off. But yeah, as soon as he starts saying that stuff, holy mackerel, <laughs> they went off like Roman candles. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was just one of those. Uh, you know, if you were gonna, and I'm sure someone will someday make a documentary about this entire process, that would be sort of like, a, a, you know, a, a huge moment in the film is this call. But but that set off a, I don't know if it set off or not. It sure seemed to set off a, um, cascade of events. Like all of a sudden, there's people wanting to do investigations. Tom Collier is dismissed from his position. Uh the, the the Army Corps of Engineers comes in and and rejects the proposal. But this the, the funny thing about this mine is that just it never goes away. Like when we had this this episode, I was pointing out to someone that I went to my first Pebble Mine event. I, I thought it was the year before my kid was born. He's ten years old, and um, Bristol had pointed out that to really close this thing up, there needs to be some land designations in that area that would make it that we don't just need to constantly revisit this horrible idea. I, I don't want to spend too much time because we've covered it so heavy. Basically, it's like this. like When you draw gold-bearing ore out of the ground, you use an acid to dissolve. Cyanide. Yeah, you use cyanide to dissolve the gold out, right? This isn't like digging up for gold nuggets. This is like ore that contains gold. You crush that stuff up, put cyanide on it, and that dissolves the gold. Then you're able to collect the dissolved gold. The problem is you have all this, you have all this waste from the cyanide, and you have like a bunch of heavy metals that are in water. And that stuff don't go away. So you got to make a big lake, and you fill this lake up with all this shit, right? Um, and they just in their plan, they're like, oh yeah, and the lake will always be there, but we'll build a sweet dam to hold it in. And people are like, what do you mean always? No, I mean, like 20 years, 50 years? No, it's like for an eternity. Forever. Forever, the lake of toxic sludge sits there behind the earthen dam. And people point out, well, how can the dam be forever? And they're like, yeah. oh, no, it'll be a sweet dam. <laughs> Real in nice dam. Si- <laughs> yeah, in a seismically, seismically active area. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so it just is very unsettling to people who have to trust that this earthen dam will hold for the rest of human history. Right. It's just hard to buy it. It's no, hard yeah, to buy it. To- the toxic sludge does last for eternity, as far yeah. as we yeah. know, right? It's got a, better, no it's got a greater it. life expectancy than the dam, that's for sure. So yeah. that's where this mine, like in a nutshell, that's where this mine becomes really problematic. Uh, well, but, your, but your original point is exactly right. And that's what, you know, Tim and, you know, Tim and I used to work together at Trout Unlimited. And he, uh, you know, so the trick now is to how do you permanently protect that area? Do you do land swap with the state and give them some federal lands where they actually may make some money? You know, do you get the state legislature to designate all those state lands as, you know, some sort of, you know, salmon reserve, you know, something like that. But, you know, there is nothing to stop the next fly-by-night jackass company coming in there five years from now when they think they have favorable politicians and do the exact same thing again. Hmm. Do you think that will kind of put a wrap on this now? Do you think that there's the, the appetite, the political appetite to like just squash this once and for all, or do you think it'll be left to linger? No, I think there's an appetite. You know, Thank you, Tom Collier, to kill this once and for all now. 
And so I think that, you know, Lisa Murkowski is already on record in you know, a variety of publications saying that she wants to find a permanent protection mechanism for Bristol Bay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I was wondering about when, you know, I, I was pretty happy when um, Donald Trump Jr., uh, Tucker Carlson, a number of right wing figures came out in, you know, varying degrees of intensity, but came out like in opposition to Pebble Mine. And I want, I, me- I remember wondering if this would somehow be like cover or could be justified as cover for something else. Uh, which I think, and now that's like a conspiracy theory that exists in my own head or not, but lay out where we're at you know, in the year in review around the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So another premier, um, another massive premier pristine ecosystem in Alaska that for my entire life, we've been arguing about, do we leave it be or do we tap its resources? Yeah. So a little bit of background on this one. And again, you know, we don't do a whole lot with ANWR, which is Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But you mean TRCP? TRCP does. TRCP, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, there's history here. So when the Alaska Native Lands, I guess it was Alaska National Interest Lands Act passed in the 1970s, which created most of the national parks, refuges, forests we have in Alaska, it was silent on what to do with the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It basically, there are 1,400 miles of coastal plain by that north slope, 1,200 of miles of which were open for oil and gas development, 200 miles being that Anwar coastal plain, were basically to be determined what we do with it later. So when that law passed in the 70s under the Carter administration, you know, it basically, you know, it didn't have to be Nostradamus to know you're going to have fights over that area for a very long time. And that's just what's played out. And, you know, so now here we are, you know, you know, a long time later, and we're still dealing with it. So it's always been the goal of politicians in Alaska to open it up because they were convinced that there's the next Prudhoe Bay is sitting under there. I think it's very questionable whether that's true or not. But what happened now is you finally had, you know, during the beginning of this administration, you had a Republican House, Republican Senate, Trump, and they jammed through opening up Anwar to development. And now the Department of the Interior is moving as fast as humanly possible to, you know, get the first lease out of there, knowing that the Biden administration, when they come in, is going to shut that thing down. It's much harder to shut it down if there's already a sole lease someplace. So that's, you know. That's why they're trying to get it leased right now and have somebody you know, buy something out there so that it's much harder to undo in the future. I mean, there's people that are opposed to drilling in Anwar. What are the reasons they're opposed to it? Well, I mean, the main thing is I think actually you know, there's a variety of different reasons, but this, the, the porcupine caribou herd is the main one. That's their main you know, calving grounds. And obviously, it's a big polar bear area, too, and polar bears aren't doing great right now. But it is, you know, because it was the biological heart of the refuge, which is why it wasn't set it opened up for oil and gas development back in the 1970s. And, you know, you know, Steve, you've been up there, you know, so you've seen it. And those caribou come in is, you know, pretty freaking amazing and huge numbers in the, you know, in the spring and early summer. So I think that's the main reason. And it's just that, you know, if you go over to Prudhoe Bay, or it is a major industrial city. And, you know, I think there's a lot of folks that want to leave that coastal plain over in Anwar the way it is not looking like that. 
Yeah, you wind up uh, when you deal with something where you have this like this pebble mine issue and the Anwar issue. Um, you do get a little self conscious. I get a little self conscious about um the tendency, my tendency to look at every development project and be like, "Oh no, not there! This is a line in the sand." And then the next one, not there. This is a line in the sand, you know. But I do feel like that, man. Um, like I, I can't. I don't know if there's even. Maybe it's just perceived. It's in my head that there's supposed to be this idea that we're tr- you trade one for the other. Like, okay, you can't do the big gold mine, but um, we'll make it up to you with some oil leases. Yeah. But man, I mean, we're talking about places that are. Again, like like the most productive, in the case of Bristol Bay, like the most productive salmon fishery in the world. Yep. Um, with Anwar, one of the most pristine Arctic ecosystems on the planet. So, I, like, I want to being a little bit unapologetic, even though it's in in my head that that you're being like a real obstructionist. But I just feel in my mind like. Yeah, those those things. It's like if if we can't have the sort of audacity and vision to protect that kind of stuff, like nothing is sacred, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you, and I think they're just special places out there, and there are fewer and fewer of them as you know more and more of our you know globe gets developed. I think Anwar, you know, Bristol Bay, Boundary Waters is one of those kind of places. Yeah, you know, we had a big campaign in the Ruby Mountains. You know. The in Nevada, that's you know a pretty special place as well. You know they're now proposing a big titanium mine. It was a titanium, I think so, on uh, you know the, by the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia, which is another pretty amazing place. So I mean, you know, there is no place that's not you know sort of under assault in some fashion. You know, talk about you know mining near the Grand Canyon. You know that's been talked about for a long time. But you can so, imagine like, extraction people. You can imagine at some point they got to be like, okay, well then where? Like I just took possession of in the mail a new titanium stovepipe for my seek outside stove yep. that goes into my teepee tent. Um, I like that I was able to order that thing. Yep. So when people say like, "Okay, so what?" Okay, Mister Mister, don't touch this and don't touch that. Uh, where should we be doing this? Like, how do you how do you answer it? I mean, look, there are a lot of places that are appropriate to mine. You know, go to Nevada and look at a bunch of the big, you know, Barrick or Newmont or some of those, you know, mining developments out there. It's incredibly arid country. I mean, basically water is the main thing that, you know, gets you in the way of, you know, a good mine. And that's what we're dealing with in Bristol Bay. That's where you're dealing with the Okefenokee, the Boundary Waters. Nevada, a place like that, that's not an issue. I mean, you get six inches of rainfall a year or whatever. So, I mean, I just are, think are there are places in Nevada that are, that are not being mined that could be, I mean, I guess maybe I have no yes. idea. I'm not a you know mineral, I'm not a geologist. So, but I'm just saying there are appropriate places for a mine. And even there are a bunch of mines being developed in Alaska that are fine. It's just, that they're not in, you know, sort of these amazing areas. And these, uh, presumably these amazing areas too, would be super cash cows for these huge energy groups i mean so it's not like this is the only place left but they just by their projections by their understanding of you know the resource they're like this would be Maybe. a major Maybe. place it's for it's, ex- it's it's accepted as an objective reality 
that Pebble is the would be the largest gold mine in human history. So I mean, it makes total sense. There's a why, lot of money. Why they would fight for it. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know, part of the problem is it's not a you know like a solid gold seam like you'd find someplace at other places. It's so spread out over such a large area, you have to churn up so much habitat to produce that gold and copper that it's you know that's where you get into the problem. So it's the you know the nature of the you know development as well. All right, well, let's keep. I, I want to keep bumping along on our list. Wolves getting federally delisted. You you have that you view this as a win with some caveats. But first, is this sure. like is this yeah. real or like I like no. I, is no. is Biden going to come in and like just undo this? No, the Obama administration proposed it too. I know. got blocked by the courts. So you don't and, think you, you know, don't think that you don't think that Biden will be like reflexively hostile to this idea? Well, I mean, I would I haven't I have not spoken to anybody about it over there, but I doubt it because they they did it in the Obama Biden administration before. You know, they proposed this and it got blocked by the courts. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, take this out of the political sphere and make it much more the wildlife biologists controlling the decision, not the courts, not Congress, not the ballot initiative someplace. And the only thing I don't like about, you know, the most recent delisting is done the day before the election in Minnesota, a swing state. And you, how do you look at that and not think it's political? And that just galvanizes the opposition to it. And uh, almost works against our interests. Those of us like to see the wolf delisted. Yeah, you know, I actually, um, well, uh, sometime, some other time, I'll tell you a story about that timing. But um, not, not that's not for now. But okay, give me the caveat. So it's a win. Like so, so people understand. Uh, it's gonna go. To, it's gonna go to the courts. Again. Yeah, U.S. Fish and Wildlife so, Service. We have. Uh, trying to think of to what level of detail we want to get in here. Catch me where I mess up on this, wit, but. Wolves were listed under the Endangered Species Act. They were listed like sort of uh, across the lower 48. One fell swoop, right? We, we just listed like, so we didn't want to hit Alaska. Didn't get, we didn't get Alaska implicated in this because Alaska has wolves across, I don't know, 99% of historic range or something like that. Um, very, you know, thriving wolf populations. But they were listed in the lower 48. Later, when we kind of got a more detailed look at the problem, we realized that thinking about the lower 48 as a whole isn't a great way to try to manage wolves um, because we know that they're not going to be recovered in, you know, downtown Denver, right? Like It's not going to happen. So we should look at like, where could they be and where are they? And kind of break up the map a little bit and talk about these different population groups. And so one of these population groups is the Northern Great Lakes. And so that's wolf populations in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Uh, you wind up, there's all kinds of complexities in the law when you try to go after the fact and impose this logic of these distinct population segments. Like it, it creates a lot of ways for people to file lawsuits. The, the fact that we didn't have that system in place when they were listed, and we tried to later come in and overlay this logic um, has created a lot of trouble. So the Northern Great Lakes wolves have been, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service went and said, it's time to delist them. It gets blocked in courts. It bounces back and forth. They have hunting and trapping seasons. Hunting and trapping seasons go away. Then all of a sudden they were locked back up, put on the endangered species list, and now they're saying, um, that, you know, the outgoing 
well, I shouldn't time it with the outgoing administration, but they're now saying, all right, enough's enough. We're just delisting the whole damn deal again. And it'll almost certainly get all wrapped up in a bunch of lawsuits. Almost certainly. But it's important to note that the, like the, the, uh, Great Lakes, the Rocky Mountains, you know, they're, they, they've exceeded recovery goals for a long time. Oh yeah. Like there, there's a reason why they're wanting to delist them. Yeah. But it's just so political and you, you may well see, you know, similar to what we've you know, had to do in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem with Congress passing you know, specific delisting legislation for the gray wolf there. My guess is you're probably gonna have to see that again in the great lakes. And these are, these are well-funded anti-hunting groups that are, have a long-term strategy to keep this inside the courts. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I think that's a fair that, description. Yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. do it like they kind of, if you look at the details of these lawsuits, they sort of skirt the issue. Um, they'll often, they don't argue uh, how many wolves there are. Or they don't argue that it's like you, you need to, when you're doing these lawsuits, you're sort of going after these, um, you're pursuing technicalities. You'd be like, okay, so you have a listing plan. Well, we can prove that you didn't consider something of relevance. And and you know like it's yes. mot it's motivated by a ver it's motivated by a desire, but you take whatever little things you can get to try to like hold it up within the courts. Yeah, it's, it's generally procedural, administrative, you know, issues. Those are the main ones that stick. Now the irony is, of course, if you know wolves had been delisted, you wouldn't have to do a ballot initiative in Colorado. They could just go ahead and reintroduce them. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah. Hmm. Huh. I I really should know this as a predator hunter. It, if wolves have been on the endangered species list, why can we hunt them in Idaho and in other places? Because, you know, there was the courts did not sing, allowed those states to move forward. Okay. And, you know, that was all litigated. And so now and, the uh, issue is the Great Lakes states. Yeah. Wisconsin, and also, you know, I Michigan. think Wyoming may still be in litigation about its plan, but, you know, that's been on and off because Wyoming didn't have as robust a plan as the other states did. Oh, no, they had, a, they had, I thought they were insane. <laughs> But they kind of, in the end, won. Like Wyoming wanted to come in. Like all the states in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem came up with these management plans, right? Right. And Wyoming came up with this management plan where they're basically saying, okay, the area around, the in the GYE area, the area around Yellowstone, they'll be managed like as a big game animal. But then they took a huge chunk of the state and said, and here they'll be managed like coyotes. No bag limits, no reporting structure, no closed season. And I thought that they were insane to try that approach and that they would never get there. And I was like, man, you're shooting yourself in the foot with that. But they stuck it out, stuck to their guns, pun intended, and got it. Despite what the Clintons wanted. Got it. Yeah, despite the Clintons, they got what they were after. Um, and and so I, I was I thought that was a a a a pretty bold play on their part. But when 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 in our list here. Delisting, you have some caveats. Explain the caveats. Oh, there, I was just what I was saying is that you know this is not you know, sort of as good as it seems because I think it's going to go straight back into the courts. So yeah, well hit hit the again. I think that yeah that that's the main caveat is that is don't go out and buy a license tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. But what about Mexican gray wolf protections? Yeah, I'm again. I'm not an expert down there. I'm not even going to venture into it. Okay. Good. Is there any solution to keep it out of the courts? I mean, it just seems like. Like the best arguments that we can come up with 
I mean, is is there going to have to be wolves running through the streets of Chicago before a lawsuit is just <laughs> no, that's, ridiculous? You know, that's why I think that you're going to see, you know, probably congressional legislation on something like the Great Lakes population. Yeah, that deals so it'll be like it'll very be like Montana and Idaho. Yeah, exactly. When when you talk uh, to when you talk to people who are opposed to delisting wolves, like wolf, like you know, diehard wolf advocates that aren't aren't interested in a compromise solution. They love to point out that we've only recovered wolves across a fraction of their range. Yep. Um, they they seldom they're, consider they're right. well, yeah, but yeah, they're they're right, and I like to point out to them that we've only recovered elk across ten percent of their range, but we manage elk hunting and elk populations in a lot of places very effectively, but we still don't have uh, elk across the entire state of Nebraska which historically we did. So yeah. it is possible to manage a species as a renewable resource, as a game species, while you're still pushing ahead with a broader recovery plan because we do it all the damn time. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun 
is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Okay, gut and the farm bill. You have this as a, the farm bill is a loss. Explain to people what the hell that, what, what, what the farm bill is. Yeah, so the Farm Bill you know, is the single largest conservation program in this country. It's $6 billion annually to incentivize conservation on private lands. It could be a conservation reserve program, you know, wetland areas, grassland areas, you know, just restoring you know, various you know, types of habitats. But it, unlike a lot of the environmental stuff we've talked about, like the Endangered Species Act, the, you know, the Farm Bill is all voluntary. It's all incentive-based. So the idea is you give a farmer you know, an incentive to enroll the land in a good conservation practice. And it's been incredibly successful. And just one of the areas, the one that we focus on a lot is the Conservation Reserve Program, which was really created back in the 1980s as a, essentially a supply management tool when during the farm crisis to get people, give money to farmers and have them set aside land so that they, they have money to, in, in spite of really terrible markets. So at its height, you know, the Farm Bill, you know, Conservation Reserve Program, about 37 million acres enrolled in it. And, you know, that's good for, you know, upland birds, it's good for deer, it's good for water quality. It, it benefits pretty much everything. Today, you know, that program is down to 20.7 million acres. Uh, give me, give me the, the number again at, at its height. 20, about 37 million acres. Down to... So we, down to the lowest level today is today is the lowest level we've seen really since the creation of the program, and that is twenty point seven million acres. Okay, and we're expecting another probably three million acres to expire, you know, in twenty twenty one. So, and at the same time, we're giving I think you know the last two years we gave thirty billion dollars to farmers because of the trade wars that were going on with China and depressed markets as essentially a bailout, not asking them to do anything. Yet at the same time, we are just starving the Conservation Reserve Program, and we're not offering enough in terms of rental rates. We're not offering enough incentives for folks to get into the program, and so you're seeing it basically, you know, dying on the vine. Are, are so farmers is, are farmers wanting to get involved, but they're just not uh, sure. They just can't make the numbers work with the way they're trying to fund it. Yeah, and they've you know there's a lot of interest to sign up for it, but when you're offering low rental rates and minimal incentives to get in you're not going to have a whole lot of interest for folks to lock up their land for 10 or 20 or however many years. So what are they doing? I mean, they're, they're growing crops on that land. They're growing Is crops in the land. Yeah, exactly. So they're you know, tilling it and growing something and getting a bailout from Congress. 
So what we want to try to do is really try to re-incentivize that, you know, the Farm Bill program and have a much more honest effort to get it implemented. And I think the Trump administration has been a mixed bag. A lot of conservation areas, good on things like Great American Outdoors Act, good on migration corridors, but they have been really bad in terms of conservation on private lands through the Farm Bill. What is it? What give me an argument against the Farm Bill? Like, what, like, what do they not like about the Farm Bill? Oh, it costs a lot of money. Yeah, but we have subsidies that cost a lot of money. Oh yeah, no, I know. Uh, it ties the farmers' hands. It requires more you know, effort to implement. It's just easier to write somebody a check and send it out there. And if you have a Department of Agriculture or an Office of Management or Budget that doesn't really care about conservation, it's not going to prioritize this. And you know, plus, you look at a program like the you know, Conservation Reserve Program, it's in the Farm Service Agency and not in the National Resource Conservation Service. NRCS wakes up every day thinking about conservation. Farm Services, FSA, does not. So, again, it's not a high priority for the agency that administers it, not a high priority for you know, Sonny Purdue, not a high priority for, you know, Nick Mulvaney and OMB. So, it, you know, it's a perfect storm of, you know, just, it's just not getting implemented. How has it, I, this is like a horrible generalization, but let's say I went out and found a random sampling. I somehow pulled a random sampling of a hundred farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I put to them, Hey, what do y'all think of, uh, the farm bill? And what do y'all think of the CRP program? What am I going to hear back? Uh, you know, probably a mixed bag. I think a lot of them, you know, really like it because it provides supplemental income for areas that they may not want to farm or maybe recognize that it's great to have pheasants on there too. And then they could do a, you know, walk-in program and have some extra money from hunting on their property also. So I think the ones that have done it, I mean, again, I think that if they were to you know, do another enrollment and offer better incentives, you see widespread interest for you know, big signups. But hey, if you hey, don't, Whit, you starve it. Yeah, Brody. How, how do you think how farming has changed plays a role here? Like you have a lot more gigantic commercial fence-to-fence farms that like there's not a tree anywhere. There's not a fallow field anywhere. And you got a lot less small farms that traditionally had brush or fallow fields or shelter belts or whatever. Like, are those big, giant commercial farms just less interested in being involved with this program? Absolutely. And I think that when you had the, you know, the old time, you know, small farmer or even, you know, the person who lived on the land and cared about it and took real pride in it, you know, that's very different than, you know, when you basically contracted out for somebody just to maximize profit off it. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. Um, so, no, I think that's part of it. But at the same time, you know, technology is, you know, with precision agriculture, things like that, you can be a lot smarter about how you farm. You can you know, target areas that you know, may be more productive for you to grow soybeans or corn and, you know, protect other areas that are much better use being in a CRP land. So to to simplify the issue, it's an issue of funding because the conservation Fund, Funding is there. Funding just is not being used. Okay, so but why wouldn't they offer more incentive through making the price super high, like making it so they should. advantageous we to would, put we, your, we your would, land in that? That's what we want to have happen, and that's what's happened in the past. But if the farmer, for whatever reason, is not, not being offered very much money, not being offered the incentive to get into it, and again, Congress has made this money available. It's sitting out there. It's just not being offered by the Department of Agriculture to the farmers. 
so that's my question. Where's the where's the stop point for that price tag? Like who decides how much money is going per acre to those farmers? Because if if it was financially advantageous, they would do it. Yeah, obviously that varies depending on where you are because you know one price doesn't fit all because you know, different okay. different. So there there are very local mechanisms to set those prices. But basically, you know, we want to have a program that is robust enough that folks want to get into it and they're willing to put decent land into it, not a bunch of just marginal habitat that can't grow anything. So, you know, that's been one of my real frustrations is, you know, just that the implementation of the farm bill, because the last farm bill was really good. I mean, it dedicated a lot of money, $6 billion annually to conservation. You know, it dedicated more money to conservation than it did to basically you know, traditional farm programs. And so we, we love that. And there's still a lot of really good programs in the farm bill, but it just needs to have, you know, a much stronger orientation towards the implementation and making it work. Okay, what's the what's the ACE Act? So that's the, uh, you know, this is an act that was passed, you know, this past year, the American Conservation Enhancement Act. Uh, huge win. It had, I think, six or seven different individual bills underneath it. Again, the idea that Congress passes big bills that have a lot of little components in it. It reauthorized the North American Wetland Conservation Act, reauthorized National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, authorized for the first time National Fish Habitat Partnership Act, which has been around administratively for a while, but had never been codified by Congress, uh, Great Lakes Program, Chesapeake Bay Program, you know, all really good, you know, on the ground conservation programs. Who, who do we have to thank for that? Was that bipartisan? Yep, very bipartisan. It passed can't remember the exact vote counts, but overwhelmingly, you know, not close. You have Martin Heinrich, who you know, you know, worked really hard on that, you know, a variety of others. But no, it was, you know, it was very bipartisan. You know, very few people opposed it. It was, again, a place where they could come together. When, when, when you're doing something like that and it's a bunch of stuff rolled together, is there a lot of infighting about trying to keep crazy stuff out that's just going to wind Always. up, tur- that's going to turn yeah. people off? Yeah, and that's one of the strategies of the folks that are anti-conservation. They'll try to get poison pills added to things till it kills the whole bill. So that is part of you know the the art and science of managing these bills when they're on the you know the floor or you know in committee and the you know Congress or the Senate or the House is you know just keeping that you know silly stuff out of there and keeping the poison pills away. I mean you know right you know there was a lot of folks that wanted to see Great Lakes you know wolf delisting on that bill. Oh. But it was just, but it was, you know, and we, we were one of them, but it was one of those things that could potentially derail that bill because of the vehemence of the opposition from some folks. Gotcha. So you're put in a position where you got to keep it clean in order just to get yeah. the win. Yeah. Listen, we would love to see a bunch of other stuff in there, but we'll take the good instead of the perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You, you said, you said anti-conservation or anti-conservation with it being so bipartisan who is this i mean there are fringe elements uh you know that you know don't like public lands i mean we've talked about them you know, they rail against them all the time you know who think that any money that's going to you know conservation you know is a waste of money yeah so it's a different orientation and they've sort of you know you can do a little you know google research and figure out who we're talking about but you know, there's a handful of members who just don't like this stuff and always, you know, fight against it. But they wouldn't describe themselves. No, no, of course not. Well, how I mean, do they the describe just, themselves? They're just like, just unfettered. Fru- fru- frugal. Uh, you know, get the government mm-hmm. out of this stuff. Government shouldn't be de- involved with this. 
Yeah. Yeah. So they either use the libertarian approach or the, you know, the you know, deficit hawk approach when it suits their purposes. But they, they don't say, I hate animals. No. No. <laughs> uh, mm. They may say, I hate public lands. Oh, they know, I don't know if they do that. But that, that's getting like less and less tenable all the time, though, man. You got to. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Thankfully. So heavy with uh, we, we have as a, in the loss column environmental rollbacks walk that through a little bit like like what well i mean let's talk about the clean water act so you know clean water act obviously it was a product of the early 1970s after we saw the cuyahoga river catch on fire and uh it is you know fundamentally changed water quality in this country to the point where the majority of our water is now fishable swimmable maybe not drinkable but you know still it's you know done an amazing you know job of cleaning stuff up now, the controversy has been, you know, to a large degree, not what comes out of a tailpipe someplace or a sewer pipe from a factory into a river. The issue is much more evolved into, you know, say, you know, open space and what is covered and what is not covered by the Clean Water Act. And there were two rulings by the Supreme Court back in the 2000s, 2004 and 2007, I believe, that basically, you know, said, Congress, you have need to define what is and what is not included in the Clean Water Act? Is a farm pond included? Is an irrigation ditch included? Is a, an ephemeral stream or you know, isolated wetland included? And so it basically told Congress to do that. Congress never you know, took it up. It's, you know, figured it was too controversial. So you've had administrations ever since defining it themselves. The Obama administration, we thought, did a very good job with the waters of the United States, which defined what was included in that in the overall navigable rivers, you know, standards. So, you know, a heart strict reading of the Clean Water Act says a navigable river is something you can actually, you know, float a boat down. A much more scientific-based reading of the statute is there are a lot of little streams that impact or wetlands that impact that navigable water directly that need to be included because, you know, that's not the way rivers work is just protecting it and not any of the tributaries. So the Obama administration set out a complex rulemaking process that basically laid out what was and what is not included. It eliminated, you know, any sort of coverage for things like farm ponds, irrigation ditches, conventional agricultural practices, things like that. But it did protect headwater streams, wetlands, and even some isolated wetlands when there was a, you know, a scientific, you know, justification. So in comes the Trump administration and proceeds to basically undo that, eliminates all the protections for headwater streams and uh, isolated wetlands. So essentially decrease by 50% the wetlands that are covered are protected by the Clean Water Act and probably decrease by maybe a quarter, you know, the stream miles that are protected. And by the, the, the rationale there is that, I mean, it basically would come down to job creation and, and, and industry, right? Like making... Sure. I mean, that's not the, what they, that's some of the arguments they use in the heavy hand of government. And they always trot out a few horror stories where there was indeed, you know, federal overreach and some poor, you know, dude that's just trying to build a farm shed or something, you know, gets blocked by, you know, some evil person from the EPA. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there have been abuses, no question, but it also argues for let's better define, you know, what is and what is not included. And our idea is let's not define it so that, you know, half the wetlands in this country are no longer protected. And it's really, you know, they trot the farmers out as the main, you know, sort of, uh, you know, victims in an overly robust Clean Water Act. Honestly, the way that the Yvonne rule is written is eliminated, you know, basically it's not, you know, 
if you have normal farm practices, farm ponds, irrigation ditches, those are not included in the Clean Water Act. Everyone knows that. But it's a lot easier to trot a farmer out there and say, you know, you're trying to destroy my livelihood than a real estate developer out there who says, you're going to block my you know, mini mall that I want to put in. Yeah, got you. Do you feel that they could have had a better way of fixing the problems? Congress needs to deal with this. So what we have a situation now is because Congress won't deal with this. You know, you have different administrations that keep you know, genuflecting back and forth. The pendulum is going to go back and forth. And if you're a developer, if you're a landowner, if you're a farmer, you're never going to have any sort of certainty about what is and what is not covered. And listen, I have, I completely agree with that. Uncertainty is a terrible thing. And we've been arguing that Congress, you know, Republicans, Democrats get together and decide what is covered and do it, you know, statutorily so that we don't have an administration just swinging back and forth that be attacked by the you know, courts all the time. Yeah. Uh, the loss column CWD as well, uh, continues to spread. No real, yeah, no real consensus the, from the sportsman community. Well, I mean, I think, you know, listen, I mean, there are some people that, you know, pretend it's not out there. They're going to be, you know, the science deniers, but Majority of folks recognize that it's a threat. I don't think anyone pretends it's not out there. All right. Maybe they, pretends just, they just say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's never going to jump to humans, you know, whatever. You're not going to see population impacts unless you replace like Wisconsin where you're seeing population impacts. So, you know, I think that, you know, prudence would dictate that we get on top of this. And uh, you know, we got $5 million appropriated last year to go out to the states to kick up surveillance and testing. Which is peanuts. You know, I mean, that's a joke. Which is peanuts. So we had $15 million in the House bill that you know, the Senate cut down to five. And you know, I was pissed, but five is better than zero, which it was before that. Yeah, but it's, but it's, then, but it's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. But the you know, Department of Agriculture you know, drags its feet on getting the money out the door and then only gets you know, about $2.5 million out to the states. And the other is used for indemnity payments for captive farms it is used for genetic research and how we might be able to modify white-tailed deer to make them live longer you know with cwd and is for administrative services you know which nobody knows what that is but basically just they paid for themselves so you know even of that piddly amount we got through congress only half of that actually made it out to the states you know to expand surveillance and testing so it's just you know there is you know the you know the you know, basically, the Department of Agriculture has done a terrible job in terms of getting on top of this. Now, I give Interior some credit because they've been you know, pretty vocal about this. And we managed to get in the ACE Act that I talked about, you know, establishment by law of an interagency chronic wasting disease task force. So Department of Agriculture, Department of the Interior, you know, probably some other agencies, too, all get together and figure out how we're going to stop the spread of this thing. Is it, my question was going to be what needs to happen with, in your opinion? I mean, do we need to, like, if we had all the money in the world, what would we do? Yeah, first of all, you you have to get control of the captive deer industry, which continues to be the biggest spreader of this, even though they won't admit that. But anytime you put you know live deer on the back of a you know a truck and you drive them around the country swapping genetics, you're moving disease. And so I would, and also we have to understand that the you know APHIS, the Department of Agriculture. You know, their herd certification program, which is supposed to sort of give you a stamp, good housekeeping seal of approval if you have a, if you're applying by certain standards, you're CWD free and you're a good operator. It's been a joke. I mean, you know, the, it keeps popping up in these certified low risk herds. And it gives, I think, producers, you know, a false sense of security. It gives regulators a false sense of security. 
So what I would recommend is that there be a moratorium on any sort of interstate movement of live deer, period, until we can get a decent herd certification program out there that we know actually works. I don't trust the Department of Agriculture to do that. You need some sort of third party, the National Academy of Sciences, something like that, to look at it and make some recommendations as to how that can be reformed so that this industry is part of the solution, not part of the problem. Now, once it's already in a wild herd, like like it is widespread across North America, mm-hmm. does that not, even though we know it came from this captive wildlife, yeah. does that not? I mean, you know, listen, hunters have an issue problem here too. I mean, you know, and I think you're allowed to see a lot of the states have put in, you know, these prohibitions of moving carcasses across state lines, and that's a good step. You know, Yanni, you did uh, that video for us last year and show people how they can bone out a deer. It's still on our website. You know, so that you have the tools, you know, to, if you're a hunter, to not be part of that problem. You know, you can have your deer tested, um, you know, but, you know, especially during the pandemic and the government, you know, sort of, you know, funding crisis that state and local governments have been under, you've seen a real, you know, decrease in testing and surveillance at the state level. And, you know, every single state agency has got a hiring freeze on, you know, they've had to redeploy resources to other areas, you know, things like surveillance and testing you know, have become a lower priority. So you're not hearing about as much right now because there's less testing going on than there has been in the past. So, you know, I, yeah, we need to do more surveillance and testing. We hunters have a responsibility to be, and if a state agency says, hey, go out and shoot a bunch of animals in this area, you know, knock the population down, do it. I mean, they're trying to make sure that you have, you know, good hunting for years to come. A state like Illinois, which took it seriously, and hunters were part of the solution and went out and they, you know, whacked a lot of deer in areas where it came in, they've kept it at background levels. Whereas Wisconsin didn't take that approach and it's you know, 50% prevalence in a bunch of the state. Yeah. I can't believe that now, man. Like, uh, Doug Dern, he talks about areas around there where guys on certain farms that he knows about where they're, you know, they're getting their deer tested their that their families are hunting on their farms and they're running some of these guys, 75% of the deer their families are getting are CWD positive. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Wisconsin's ground. It's ground zero, man. Ground zero, absolutely. It's like the fu- The future is the future is now in that place, man. Yep. And no, no other state out there wants to be like Wisconsin. So give them the resources, you know, they can that they need to not be that state. All right, let's end, let let's end on a win. Um, with tell people what a Manhattan, 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 Manhattan. Menhaden. Menhaden. Yeah, it's also What's, called uh, you know bunker or pogie, depending on where you are. It's basically the bottom of the food chain uh, in the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. Everything eats it. You know, striped bass. You know, redfish, uh, eagles, whales. I mean, you name it, they eat it because it's a nasty little oily fish. What's it look and, like? You know, Tate. Uh, it looks like a, maybe a shad is probably the closest thing I'd think about. Yeah, but how many you inches know, so long? It, oh, you know they. The big one would be like 14 inches long, so like 15 inches. Oh, they get that big. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they're filter feeders, so they have an environmental function too. So in a place like the Chesapeake Bay, which has chronic water quality problems and is a breeding ground for Menhaden, I mean, the more Menhaden you have in there, the better water quality you're going to have. Yeah. Same thing with oysters. But anyway, we have uh, you know never done a good job of managing forage fish, the base of the food chain. We manage them like we've done everything else, which is, you know, how many fish can you kill before you crash the species? Instead of what does the ecosystem need? And based on that, you know, how many fish should, can you kill? And the, when I say, you know, it's not like everybody is out there killing them. There is one industry on the East Coast, and that's 
place called Omega Protein that catches these things in giant purse seines, grinds them up, turns them into you know, basically fish food for aquaculture salmon, you know, in Canada. Huh. So, yeah. So anyway, it so those fish you... they're using those fish to feed farm fish. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought there was like one... a, I thought there was a pet food component to this. Yeah, there might be. Yeah. yeah, but that's the reason that Cook, you know, Cook Industries bought Omega Protein. Cook is the big aquaculture operation up there, and obviously it's part of vertical integration. So if you buy, you know, the company that makes your food, you're going to be more profitable. Got you. So. So what we finally got to do is, you know, the Atlanta States Marine Fisheries Commission, which regulates basically the, you know, non-federal waters, nearly three miles and in, you know, up and down the East Coast for migratory fish, including menhaden, striped bass, bluefish, weakfish. You know, they finally changed the way, you know, they manage it to move from, you know, single species management to ecosystem management. And they adopted that unanimously this summer. And then in the fall, they came together and, you know, basically did the first catch limits based on the new model and reduced the Menhaden harvest by 10%. Now, their science showed that it should have been reduced by 18%, but at least 10% is a step in the right direction. So I say that's a win because you've had a basically a fundamental sea change of how we manage the bottom of the food chain, which helps every predator out there. Uh, will that 10% allow the fish to start to recover, you think? Oh, yeah. And we're already seeing that, you know, a reduction a few years ago, we're already seeing more menhaden out there than we have before. I mean, I've got a guy who works for us, you know, in Long Island, and he was saying there at some points this summer there were schools that ran basically from Montauk all the way down to Fire Island. And for those of you who sort of know your Long Island geography, that's a long way. And you had everything in there feeding on them: whales, bluefin tuna, you know, striped bass galore. And so we're already see, starting to see them come back. And but they're saying right now that the current menhaden harvest reduces striped bass populations by about 30%. The striped bass is the number one recreational you know, fish in the country, saltwater. And uh, there's going to be some science coming out in the Gulf of Mexico where we have even a bigger industry, Menhaden industry, and two players, you know, Daybrook is a South African company, and Cook, which is the Canadian company. And the research that's going to come out of the University of Florida, it's already out there in draft, is showing that there's about a 50% reduction in, you know, redfish and sea trout, you know, due to the current Menhaden harvest down there. There's also some indications. Well, meaning, that, meaning that there's these researchers are saying that the, due to this Menhaden harvest, yep. they're seeing a, like in our own lifetimes. Oh yeah. No, there, if you didn't have that harvest, you'd have 50% more redfish and sea trout than you do now. No kidding. And this industry is growing substantially. They're planning on growing another 50%. And there's anecdotal information out there, too, that tarpon are directly impacted by this harvest, too. Because tarpon will follow the Menhaden around. That's a, that's a tasty meal for a tarpon. Huh. So these guys, these, these commercial harvesters, like these industrial harvesters, they might be um, seeing some reductions in their harvest quotas coming up in the yeah. Gulf, too. Maybe, but the Gulf is the wild west out there. You know, it is a it, it, bigger industry. You got two players. There are no catch limits in place. There's a voluntary agreement. There are no hard catch limits in place. Unlike in the Atlantic, where the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission actually has legislative authority to manage it, Gulf States Marine Fisheries Commission doesn't. So there's not even a mechanism right now for them to you know, reduce harvests and manda- mandate it. Another issue is the, the pogey boats in the Gulf 
you know, there are more and more conflicts with recreational anglers because they will come right in on the, you know, the beaches and catching them. Doesn't matter if you're in there catch, you know, fishing for them, they will come in there, push you off and, you know, hit that school. And they're also tearing up a lot of the, you know, barrier islands we've been working on restoring down there after Katrina. So they're causing environmental damage. They're, you know, direct conflicts, recreational anglers, and there's the direct conflict, the direct impacts on sport fish throughout the Gulf. And this was in the wind column? Well, well the <laughs> Atlantic is in the wind column. The, the Gulf, we haven't even gotten started there. I mean, that's going to be the next frontier. We're going to get engaged. We're going to go down there. We're going to try to get common sense regulations. I mean, listen, you can still have a big reduction industry down there. It is a really fertile, you know, Gulf of Mexico. And uh, you can, but you ought to stop the industry where it is now at a minimum. Don't let it grow another 50%. You know, push them off the beaches where we have all the conflicts of recreational anglers. So there are things you can do that honestly, I think in the end would work for everybody. But, you know, the status quo is not sustainable long term. So it's like win part one. Yeah. So like at the end of the first Star Wars, they blow up the thing, but then all of a sudden you got the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, something like that. Yep. <laughs> Co- coincidentally, I just got an email with like a half dozen beautiful pictures of a humpback feeding on Menhaden off of Cape Lookout in North Carolina. Oh, this is yeah. a. I'm no fish biologist, but I was going to say it sounds to me like the whales are part of the problem here. Oh, <laughs> honestly, you know, people care. I mean, the general public at large cares a lot more about the whales than they do about striped bass. So uh, they're they're there are sort of you know well, they're, we they're want part of Menhaden. It sounds to me like we need less whales. I don't oh, know. I, no, no. I, I, <laughs> we, we want more Manhattan and we want more whales. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got it backwards. I got it. I understand now. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well, one last thing. We got time for one last thing. Yanni, can you, can you, uh, are, are you ready to? Oh, I thought you forgot all about my book report. No, man. What we got here, Yanni's book report. Man, he threw mine in at the first and I was just like jumbled. Well, because we, we're trying to, um, it's hard to explain. I didn't know how long we need for wit, but we got Yanni's going to Yanni's going to redeem this segment. Well, here's the thing: knocking it out of the park. Here's the thing: is I didn't know how long it was going to take for wit. We got through the list. I had wrote a, a scathing email to Yanni about his not <laughs> telling me whether or not he was prepared to deliver. And so then, for me to not get to it would lead him to think that he could do a bad job and not even get caught. You know, I've actually got uh, two of them stacked up that we've talked about doing prior and haven't gotten to them. So we, we have some already ready for the next time. Well, it's, it's chef's choice. So you can do whatever little, uh, you can do whatever book report you want. Well, no, I'm going to do the one that I worked on today because it's fresh <laughs> in my head for sure. book report all right this story uh, interestingly i think to me when i pulled up the map that was associated with this story i immediately saw latvia Latvia. (laughs) i'm like yeah that's why i thought right up my alley that's why i thought you'd be good at this because it's like a little bit uh close to home yeah totally no little if 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 uh riga latvia so you know where because everybody knows where Riga, Latvia is. Oh, yeah, for sure. If, if that was the center of the clock, this story takes place about um, 500 miles northwest. No, sorry, 745 miles northwest. 10 o'clock from the center, from the center of the clock. 
um, in my opinion, there's a high likelihood that I probably share blood with some of the same hunters that left these artifacts that I'm going to talk about in this story. Ooh, I like this. Um, yeah, I might as well be doing a biography of my family here. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that today. Um, yeah, it's like I'm your uh, new uh, Eastern Northern European correspondent here for Meat Eater. So you're going to have to keep coming up with stories that I can do reports on from the zone of the world. All right. The, uh, it's a Nat Geo article titled 6,000 Years of Arrows Emerge from Melting Norwegian Ice Patch. Love it. Yeah. Interesting enough. Um, the first artifact that was found here was a 3,300-year-old 3, shoe that was found in 2006. That's kind of what tipped everybody off to, like, ice patch archaeology, right? It, like, wasn't a thing, I guess, up until then, right? Somebody finds a shoe sticking out of this ice patch, and they start paying attention. They also start paying attention to ice patches all across the world. Yeah, because stuff that's been buried under this ice is now, like, because it's all melting at a pretty alarming rate. Everybody always says alarming rate. Yeah, I don't know if it's alarming or not. I mean, if you look back at history, there's been a lot of melts and freeze and thaws. What is alarming, I'll point out, is that it might not be good for us to live on this planet if, if it continues down this path, right? People always say, oh, poor Mother Earth. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't pity her at all. I think she could shrug her shoulders, get rid of us, and she'll keep on spinning around the sun for quite some time. Um, it just might not work out so good for us. Hey, can you uh, clarify that these aren't glaciers? Yes. I oh, was they're not glaciers. I was just going to point out that it, an ice patch is different from a glacier, which is basically a slow-moving river of frozen ice. That's a glacier. That's a glacier. An ice ice patch is just a deposit of water, which then freezes and, and forms, and it can grow bigger and smaller, you know, depending on what average temperatures are doing. Huh, I didn't know that. That's good. But it doesn't move. Yeah. Sounds like normal ice to me. What uh <laughs> What was the shoe that came out of it? What was the shoe made out of? Oh man, uh, there weren't any details about that shoe. Um but a couple of interesting things that they I mean obviously we're interested in it more because of like these uh I think there was a total of 60 some arrows that popped out of here, right? And they figured that at time they could look kind of because from radiocarbon dating so they could like date each arrow. And they can say, oh, this, these 10 arrows were here from 2,000 years ago. And then these 15 were from 6,000 years ago. And they can radiocarbon date the antlers and bones and other things that they found at this ice patch and sort of figure out how, you know, when the hunters were there, you know, how much they were um, dealing with the, or what were they doing with the animals? Because they found times where there was a whole bunch of bones uh, and arrows, right? Indicating that sort of like they're there hunting. And they were there, and they were killing stuff, right? But then there's other times there's a whole bunch of bones, but no arrows. And I don't know. This seems kind of a, a stretch. And I don't know if it's the researchers that's doing this, assuming it was or all pa- it was all pass throughs, man. <laughs> but they're saying that well, just at that time, it was just wolverines killing all these reindeer and stashing them, huh? Which they do. But it seems like there had to be a lot of wolverines right around there doing this right? in the same spot. Yeah, same spot, huh. which I want to get to about this spot and ask you guys a, 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 a question here in a second. But there's other times where the inverse was there, right? Like uh, a lot of arrows, but no bones. And they just figured that at that time, the humans were 
taking like literally using more of the animal or using all of it and taking it off the mountain where this because this ice patch is at high elevation right so instead of maybe just taking some meat they're actually taking bones antlers and fur for whatever reason they were going to use it for you know making things trading whatever it might be gotcha but he also makes the assumption that because they found like a point that was made out of iron there was a point that was made out of a uh, sharpened muscle shell from a river like 50 miles away and then there was a stone point there so the guy says well even though their uh technology changed they still kept to their same hunting techniques and i'm like yeah and he's just saying technique as in because it's all in the same spot right and i don't think that that's necessarily like a technique they were like hunting a zone that had animals right yeah but like they're just returning to the same spot. It's like, I don't look at it as the same technique. Well, right? Wasn't he talking about that they were using archery equipment, though? I mean, was that what he was referring to? Yeah. Like they could have used something different. Maybe. Did I say te- Yeah. He said their hunting technique stayed the same, even as the weapons they used evolved from stone and river shell arrowheads to iron points. Yeah, I think that's him saying they just showed back up in the same spot year after year over hundreds, yeah. of, hundreds All right. of years. But here's my question to you guys. Yeah, well, listen, is, man. Hold, hold tight a minute. Yeah. If you were shooting uh, old Delta points, mm-hmm. you go up and hunt a spot and you're shooting old Delta points. Then all of a sudden, like, Razorbacks come out and you start <laughs> shooting Razorbacks up in that same spot. Mm-hmm. Then a while later, Mechanicals come out. And you start shooting mechanicals up in that spot. Mm-hmm. And then like single bevels come out and you start shooting those up in that spot. Uh, I think that you could safely say that this dude's techniques stayed the same, but his, his shit kept changing around. His, his tools just changed. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. All right. I'll take it. Now, why, uh, why do you think it's an ice patch on top of a mountain, right? Yeah. In Norway, like central food Norway. Food plot. I'm going to cut you off at the gap. <laughs> he had a food plot there. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, but that is the question. Is why, why there? Why there? What drew the animals there? Do you know the answer? Yes. Is it a saddle? A saddle. No. No. If there's ice there, there was water. There's a water hole when the climate was much drier. Maybe. Any other guesses? Uh, um, Corn pile. It's not a pass. I'll, gi- I'll, give you, I'll give you a tip. Yeah. They were always hunting there in the summer. Calving area? Well, Maybe, but that's not what this article said, not what the research said. Oh, they're avoiding bugs? Yes. Oh, get away from all the high spot, mosquitoes, High windy man. spot. Hmm. Isn't that that's something? Pretty you know, we don't really get to apply that. Ambush That's speculative, tech. man. Oh, come on. They no, do that I mean, now. That... We know that. You can in the summertime you can go to anywhere in you know the high arctic and that's where you find them we talk about mimicking caribou oh i thought you meant that's what the, the dudes were no i thought you meant that's what the I'm dudes were doing no 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 oh no, 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 no. i told animals yeah. I, I totally agree man because when you go out in the in the mountains the caribou in august are always laying up in a snow pile on top of a mountain mm-hmm Okay. I mean, like, That's literally, the survival book. They literally are laying in snow patches on the north side of peaks. I totally buy that. This is a good book report. 
I was going to give a bad grade when he kind of messed up that techniques part. <laughs> but now I'm bad. I don't know. I think you should read the story and decide for yourself because I think he was kind of leading me the wrong way. Um, so that's kind of the interesting stuff about the the hunting. What uh, the researchers sort of like their big takeaway and the, the takeaway from this article is that they're hoping that the, an ice patch would be like this uh, perfect time machine, right? Where if something was f- like the the last, the, the, the thing that was the oldest, everybody thought would be buried the deepest or be at the centermost part of this ice patch, sure. right? Yeah. And then things that later in time would come in there would be sorted to, toward the out, outer ends. But after this discovering them being able to radiocarbon date 60 plus arrows, they're finding out that that's completely not the not the case and they're just guessing that underneath the surface because of melting and movement that uh it could be like like that the water melted a little bit and then and then a uh you know little river or little stream carried an arrow to the just getting all jumped just getting all jumbled up yeah and it's also getting torn up and mangled and then if it's let's say something like a light arrow shaft all of a sudden appeared on the surface the wind could very easily blow it to the edge, right? Or blow it right off of an yeah, ice and the full metal, so the full metal jackets, full metal jackets are all on the bottom. Yeah, they were expecting like a layer cake of aero technology. Exactly. What? Well, uh, just like how, an archaeologist is... digging in the dirt, right? Yeah. You're going to expect the oldest stuff to be towards the bottom. How big? Uh, how big is this uh, ice patch? Uh, sixty acres, I believe. Oh. Wow. I have a great way to visualize that because I grew up on a 60-acre lake. There so it's just go. about the size, just for you people at home listening, it's about the size of the lake where I grew up. <laughs> I bet they'll find a bunch of your stuff there one day, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to drop a signed copy of the Wilderness Skills and Survival book down there in like a Ziploc bag. I tell you what, man, there's a lot, they will, there is a lot of my stuff laying on the bottom of that lake, man. <laughs> Um, I'll close with this. To them, it is melting at an alarming rate. Not so much because I don't think they're they're worried about the uh, you know the planet melting or, and blowing up or whatever, but because they know that they only have today's technology and today's techniques to figure out what they're seeing and what to do with it, and it's all coming at them very rapidly. And they're just hoping that they can do the best they can, you know, in the moment. Yeah, I want to I want to throw a little archaeological. Uh archaeology anthropology tidbit in here um our our understandings and technologies change all the time and there's this thing in modern day archaeology where they'll find some big camp right and let's say this camp is you know the an acre in size they'll be like you know you're tempted to go in and dig the whole thing up right see what all's in there but they're like they know that just in 10 years time, 20 years time, our questions are going to be different. Our methods are going to be different. So they'll take a little chunk and do a little chunk now, knowing that they're leaving tons for future generations to go in and do what they need to do with it. The, the, the Folsom site, which I talk about all the time, when they first dug the Folsom site, which is an Ice Age kill site where some hunters uh, killed some ice age bison when they went in there first they just wanted to find big bones and big projectile points and they dug the whole damn thing later when people started realizing that you could look at pollen counts to figure out what the climate was like 
and that there was all these other food items to search for and that you could, you know, pursue all these different avenues of discovery. They had to go to those people's debris pile. So they had to go dig through all the garbage that the first archaeologists left behind to try to see what they could discover. And it was like, imagine if those guys had just taken a little chunk and took a look. And then a hundred years later, other dudes that had a way different idea about how to go about it had their little chunk to share. Um, so what these boys are saying is that uh, that's not going to work. It's all, it's all happening right now. Yep. It's coming, coming right to the surface. Thank you, Yanni. You're welcome. Mm. That's a great little report. <laughs> uh, and, and thank you, Wit, for coming on. Tell people how to find TRCP. TRCP.org. Come on. Love to have you involved. Yeah. Um, you can go in. If you want to help TRCP, tell them the TRCP slogan, the war cry. Guaranteeing all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. If you want to get uh, on that train, you can make a donation to support TRCP. And there's other ways you can get involved. Um, so, yeah, trcp.org. Find them, see what they're all about. You can find policy papers um, and kind of figure out where they stand on everything. Nothing happens in secret. Oh, no. No, very transparent. Um, you can find it all out. You don't need to wonder what they really think about things because it's just laid out there for you. It is public information. So thanks, Wit. Thanks, Brody, Giannis, Clay. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Wit. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more this show is sponsored in part by better help it is a simple truth no matter who you are mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference that's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.